1961, a biologist named Ivan T. Sanderson published a book called Abominable Snowmen, Legend Come to Life. In this first-of-its-kind work, Sanderson proposed a rather shocking theory, that man-like animals, as yet unrecognized by science, existed in various forms around the world. The book laid out his case for the persistence of four types of hominoids, a large, upright form, which Sanderson called the neo-giants, a small, diminutive form, which he called the proto-pygmies, a very near-man-like form, which he called the subhumans, and a more ape-like form called the subhominids. Since the introduction of these mystery apes to the world, much has been written about their persistence, most prolifically regarding the North American wood ape or the Sasquatch, the Asian Yeti, the Russian Almas, and the Indonesian Orang Pindak. As an avid reader of works related to mystery apes worldwide, I can attest to the fact that new information, new discoveries, and new revelations in this subject are extremely rare. With few exceptions, most authors and researchers have been content to retread the same worn ground that was covered by Sanderson in the early 60s. That is, until now, here in the year 2020. In late January of this year, I was made aware of a new book penned by a renowned and accomplished wildlife researcher and conservationist detailing his personal observations of a mystery ape quite similar to the North American wood ape. While books detailing such creatures aren't rare, this one was, and for one primary reason. The mystery apes detailed occur in the Afro-Montane forests of South Africa. Locally referred to as the Otung, these mysterious hominoids stand upright, range from 5 to 7 feet tall, and display a suite of physical and behavioral characteristics that should sound familiar to any students of the relict hominoid phenomenon worldwide. The credibility and reputation of the primary observer, wildlife researcher and author Gareth Patterson, served to strengthen these claims, making this proposition a very difficult one to summarily dismiss. Given that this new publication, titled Beyond the Secret Elephants, introduces the world to a new mystery ape, I have to consider that it's one of the most important works within this subject to have been published in the last three decades. After reading the book, I reached out to Gareth to ask questions, and among those, I asked if he'd be willing to speak with our audience about his observations and the observational testimonies of other people that he had collected over the last two decades involving these Otung. I'm Matt Pruitt of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and in this episode you'll hear an extended one-on-one conversation that I had with Gareth about his research with lions, elephants, and the Otang. This will serve as the first installment of a new series here on Apes Among Us, which we're calling The Planet of the Mystery Apes. I, along with my co-hosts Brian Brown and Brandon Lentz, will be speaking with various researchers across the globe who've devoted themselves to the discovery of relic hominoids on other continents. By broadening our understanding of these studies, perhaps we'll gain new insights into our own pursuits here in the Washita Mountains and in our own field efforts. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us, Planet of the Mystery Apes, Chapter 1, South Africa's Otung. I'm very pleased to introduce our guest, Gareth Patterson. Gareth is a South Africa-based wildlife researcher, conservationist, and author. Gareth, would you please tell our audience about your background in wildlife research, environmentalism, and conservation? Yeah, thanks very much, Matt. Um, basically, um, I grew up in I, I grew up in Western East Africa. The bulk of my life has been in in Africa, um, and um, I've always lived in 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 the wild, um, be it in uh, mangrove swamps in in southern Nigeria to sub-Saharan Nigeria, um, the beautiful um, warm heart of Africa in Malawi. Um, so I've always been in wild places, and the natural progression from that. As a <clears throat> as a youngster leaving school, I started as a trainee game ranger in South Africa at the age of about seventeen, and uh, by the time I was twenty, I was actually studying lions in Botswana. And that uh, developed into, that study was basically the basis of my first book, which was over 30 years ago called Cry for the Lions. And then a long succession of books continued, mostly on the lion theme. Uh, Some people will best know me for my work with the late George Adamson of Born Free fame. And when George was murdered in 1989 by Ivory Poacher, um, at that time he was rehabilitating three young lion cubs back into the wild. And after his death, I, um, I rescued the cubs in Kenya, that was in Kenya, and moved them down to my research area in Botswana, uh, whereupon over a period of two, three years, 
uh, successfully rehabilitated them back into the wild. And from there, um, moved to South Africa, was involved in exposing for the first time with um, the Cook Report TV program from the UK and the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And we um, basically exposed for the first time to the world uh, this very sordid practice in South Africa of canned lime hunting, whereupon captive-born cubs, when they're old enough, um, are shot in enclosed areas. So we exposed that back in 97, I think it was. And 2001, I moved down to Neisner, very much the southern tip of Africa, whereupon I did work on, um, at the time, they thought there was only one Neisner elephant left, the most southerly elephants in the world. And thankfully, the authorities were wrong. And I went on with DNA work with an American uh, colleague, conservation geneticist, Laurie Eggert. And through field work, we discovered that uh, there was certainly more than one elephant. And we discovered that there's probably at least 12 to 14 elephants. And it was during that time that I first started hearing about this mysterious being, which is called locally the Otung. I find it interesting, first of all, that you're involved in this pursuit there in Nisna, in that Afro-Montane forest, of pursuing these very, very large furtive animals. And it's really interesting to see the challenges that you face documenting things like elephants, because, you know, here in the United States or North America, we're pursuing Sasquatches. And I think there's this general assumption that, oh, well, if something was out there that was that large, it would be easy to locate. And then I, you know, to read about your work and realize like it's not even easy to locate something as large as an elephant in that kind of dense environment. And so uh, I'm sure there are parallel challenges there. So uh, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about the challenges of tracking and pursuing these large furtive animals and then how that led into this inbound information related to the Otang. Yeah, I mean, with the with the elephants, it was fascinating. I mean, you've got about 650 square kilometers of of very very dense Afro-Montane um, forest. Um, you can hardly see in more than five ten meters or so. Um, and actually, the, the the elephants range beyond the forest. It's even more dense, and it's what we call uh, mountain fynbos, which uh, in other parts of the world would is known as heath. But this this um, vegetation gets very very dense, and when you've got elephant pathways going through the fynbos, basically you're locked in to the pathways, like being in a maze. So it's actually thicker than the forest itself. And and that is an, a huge area. I mean, it's just endless. When I first came down to Neisner uh, to start the study in 2001, uh, they, the, the authorities thought the elephants, the elephant, as, as they thought at the time, was restricted to about 100 square kilometers of central forest. But as time went by, and it was a long study. I thought I was coming down here for maybe a two, three-year study, and that's almost two decades ago. So when I when I first came down here, like I said, they thought it was about 100, 100 square kilometers um, of the range of the elephant. Um, but as the study went on, I realized, well, first of all, they didn't realize that the elephants are inhabiting the mountain Fynbos. And um, every year of the study, I was finding signs of the elephants they were almost like recolonizing portions of their historical range. And today I would put their range at being sure, in excess of a thousand square kilometers. And, um, you know, if we're going to keep the math simple and say there's only 10 elephants out there and that's a thousand square kilometers, you're talking about one elephant per 100 square kilometers. So it's not surprising, to be completely honest. Um, why people didn't know and still don't know. None of us really know uh, the true numbers of these elephants. It's actually an impossible task. Um, I did go the route with the DNA with Dr. Laurie Eggert, and that was a revelation, um, extracting DNA from elephant droppings. It's not actually the droppings. It's actually the mucus covering of the droppings, and I collected the samples. She did the laboratory work, 
And that's when we discovered, the first time round we did it, we discovered that there were a minimum. And this why I like working with DNA work in, in terms of a census, because it gives you a very minimum figure. And it gave us um, five females, interrelated females. And then when, when we did it again, two years later, um, we got the same five females, which was fantastic to know that those five were still around. But we, on top of that, we got a sixth female who we missed the first time round. And both projects, uh, census projects, we didn't discover any bulls, but we knew there were bulls out there because there's, there's evidence of calves and we're coming across, there's a very big difference between um, the size of a bull elephant and uh, adult cow elephant. So yeah, so it very much gives you a minimum figure. Yeah, it was it was an interesting undertaking, but I must admit, within the first three months, because I come from a background of not only lions but elephants as well. Wherever I've worked with lions, obviously there's elephants in the in the same area, and um, within oh, a couple of months of being here, <clears throat> I remember one morning um, finding the spore, the the footprints of three different elephants on a road, which I followed for about four kilometers. My girlfriend at the time, Franchere and I, we tracked them. They were very conveniently just walking down a road. And um, it was just blatantly clear that the, this was three elephants, um, one with very small footprints, the other medium size, and the other very big, you know. So that was very clear that very early on that there was definitely, thankfully, more than one elephant here. I imagine something like that would definitely generate a lot of motivation to continue because you're getting a little bit of insight into, you know, kind of the final answer, at least that, you know, you are dealing with multiple individuals uh, rather than trying to answer that question for years before getting that answer. And how long was it after you had arrived in Nisnet and begun searching for the, the evidence of additional elephants there that you first were introduced to the idea of the Otung? You know, it's a very interesting story because and I came down here to start work on the elephants in 2001, but I actually first came to the Neisner for the very first time in 1999, and I was brought down to this area um, by lions, believe it or not, because with the International Fund for Animal Welfare and various other people, we rescued four lions from the canned lion industry, <clears throat> and we set up um, about about 100 kilometers from where I'm speaking now on the edge of the forest, um, we set up on a game reserve, a 100-hectare um, natural habitat for these lions that we'd rescued. And so I was in 99 coming down here to organize that and to and sort things out in the planning for this sanctuary. And um, I said to my girlfriend at the time, Francia, I said, we're you know, we're so close to the Neisner forest. I'd always been so fascinated about the um, Neisner elephants and the mystery behind them. And I said to her, let's, you know, at the end of the work here, let's let's go to Neisner and spend a couple of days there and go into the forest for the first time. And we were staying at a hotel outside Neisner town, which is a small coastal, very much a sort of tourist town, very quite a quaint little town, very beautiful area. And we're staying in this hotel, and we'd got to know the hotel manager the night before. And the following morning, he was going to give us directions of how to go into the central forest. And as we we're having breakfast, he sat down with us. And he was, I think he was sort of reading my mind, because I hadn't mentioned to him about coming down here one day doing research on the elephants. It was something just going through my mind. And he said to me, why don't you, when you finish this canned lion story. Why don't you come down here and look into, because us locals believe there's certainly more than one elephant. And then he said, but there's something even more mysterious than the Neisner elephant. And he told me the story of how that year he had a group of German tourists staying at the hotel. And like me, they'd asked him for directions to drive into the forest. And he did that. And um, that afternoon, he found his guests in the bar, um, very, very quiet, and obviously not happy within themselves. And obviously, being the hotel manager, he was concerned, and he said to them, is everything all right? And they actually turned around to him and said, no, it isn't all right. And then they proceeded to describe how they were 
driving deep in the forest, and they saw three human-like figures on the side of the dirt road, which proceeded to run across the road in front of them. And they could see that these were bipedal, human-looking beings covered in, in hair. And so the hotel manager turned around to them and said, no, 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 what you saw was baboons. And at, at that point, they almost got angry with him. Um, they turned around to him and said, look, we are well, well-traveled, well-educated um, people. We know what baboons are. Um, we saw baboons as we first entered the forest. And what we saw running across the road certainly wasn't baboons. Now, being a sort of, I don't know what you'd call me, actually, an open-minded skeptic, a combination of the, of the two, when he told me that story, I immediately thought, no, they've seen baboons here. And that was really my first introduction to the whole thing. And then we went into the forest, and I saw how dense it was. And coming from a background of, of elephants as well, and knowing how you need so little cover in the savannah situation to hide these massive beings, you know, the elephants, um, within this dense forest and um, dense famous vegetation, I, I just realized when I got to a very high point um, on, a, on a sort of large hill overlooking the forest and the mountains and everything, you know, coming from that background, I, I thought to myself, you know, no one could really know what's going on in there and how many elephants there are. And that's when I sort of formulated the idea of when I finished the canned line work, I'd come back. And, and two years later, that's when I came back in 2001 to start work on the elephant. And how long was it before you started encountering other stories or eyewitness accounts, or at least, you know, that there was a, a local awareness or uh, kind of collective knowledge about the Otung there beyond just the, the hotel owner's suggestion? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was very, very quickly, actually. Um, these stories started drifting towards me. I was doing some work with a forestry botanist in his, in his office doing some plant identification. And out of the blue, he said to me, this was within a few months of me being here. I mean, the last thing on my mind was, you know, relic hominoids. And um, out of the blue, he said, you know, with all your walking around in the forest, Gareth, um, have you ever come across an upright um, bipedal um, walking hominoid. And that surprised me because it took me straight back to two years previously, you know, with a hotel manager. And I said, no, I said, no, but why? Why do you ask? And he says, we've got two separate areas of two separate reports of our forestry workers who swear blind they had, they had seen these beings. So that, that was the next story that came in. Then a neighbor of mine, uh, where I live, people got to know that I was doing work on the elephants. And he stopped me one day and asked me about the work and all the rest of it. And he says, he said to me, you, you should speak to a colleague of mine because there's something even more mysterious out there than the elephants. And then he proceeded to tell me how this colleague of his, um, when they were young boys, uh, him and his brother were driving in, a, were parents were driving and they were in the back of a open Land Rover, and they turned a corner and they, they saw an O-tongue. They were teenage boys, and they were both absolutely stunned. Uh, this associated shock that people go into when they see these beings. And they didn't mention a word until they got home. And then they said to their parents, told their parents what they saw. And the, and the parents just dismissed it and said, no, no, it was baboons uh, that you saw. It must have been baboons what you saw. And, you know, these are, these are, you know, he's a, you know, a man, adult man today, and he's grown up in this area. And uh, like the Germans, he certainly knew what a baboon was and what he saw was. And he had ridicule for years and uh, him and his brother. And they got to a point, I actually spoke to him um, and interviewed him. And he says, I don't care what people think anymore. We saw what we saw. And if anything, it was an incredible privilege to have seen what we had seen. So it was these sort of stories that started coming forward to me. And like I said, the last thing on my mind was, you know, about uh, relic hominoids. 
it just seems like there's something collective across the human platform that we have this blind spot to these things because you find that there's a commonality in that witness reaction in North America, in Asia, in Australia, and apparently in South Africa as well. And so you can understand uh, after years of doing this that, you know, I, I think sometimes members of the public think that, oh, well, if these animals are real, there must be some kind of government cover up. And so I have to explain to people, no, the suppression occurs at the individual level immediately upon the point of contact. You know, it's people see it, they're shocked, they're confused, they don't know how to process it. And very often, then you have these other societal influences like ridicule or, uh, you know, people doubting claims like that or thinking that claims like that are associated with uh, lying or craziness or drinking, et cetera. And so it just gets suppressed on the individual level over and over and over again. Absolutely. I mean, just about every eyewitness I spoke to, they went through, I mean, it's a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, what they go through, because they're seeing something that, according to science, doesn't exist. And then, then they keep quiet about it. And, it, and, it's, and it's very, very, there's parallels here with the eyewitnesses that, you know, for months, they won't even tell their, their partner or their, their family or, or whatever. I mean, I had... Since my book has come out, and the book has only been out a short time, it came out in the end of January, um, it's amazing how I'm hearing news stories and, and people approaching me with their eyewitness accounts. And just to give you an example of that, we held a, a launch of the book here in Neisner, and there was about 70 people there. We held it at the local bookshop. There was about 70 people there. And I, I spoke for the very first time about Otung and what, what, the, what the whole book is about. And believe it or not, um, as I was signing books afterwards, um, first of all, a young, young, uh, young lady came up to me and, and she just told me about her eyewitness account that she had very, very close to where I live, actually, uh, when she was a... She, and I say, young lady, she would be in her, I'd say, 30s today. And this happened when she was about 18 at night. Um, she was on the back of a motorbike um, and going on this dirt road near where I live. And um, there was another bike behind them. So it's just youngsters having fun at, at night on, on motorbikes, on, on dirt roads. And and they they stopped and and turned the bike around. As they turned the, the bike around, suddenly they saw um, a large O-tongue cross in front of them. They went, they were terrified, and they, they drove back, came across the other couple on the motorbike, told them about it, but they just laughed it off. And she's really just kept this whole thing to herself until that evening of the book launch. Then another person came up to me, and he's an anthropologist and artist. He says, Gareth, what do you what you're writing about here and talking about here is actually very, very important because um, my son saw one of these beings when he was nine years old, um, I think nine or 11 years old. And he, today he's a teacher in Burma. He's about 22 years old. Um, and he came across one at, um, at night, um, full moon, as he was just riding around on this property on his, on his, on his mountain bike, I think it was, or something. And then another woman came up to me and recounted what a family member had seen, eyewitness account. And then lo and behold, another woman came up to me and told me about a family member who had also had a sighting. And there's about, like I said, only about 70 people there. And um, my, my, my girlfriend, Kirsten, um, is very good with numbers. And she <laughs> worked out that that was extraordinary because that actually represents something like I forget the figure, but like seven and a half percent of the people there could recount um, eyewitness accounts of coming across Otung. So if you apply that to the like 70,000 people who live in the vicinity of Neisda, it really makes you wonder how many people in this, in this tiny, in this small town um, have actually had encounters. I think the encounters are far more common than what um, than what we perceive, and um, at the launch itself, I had a friend of mine with me called Tembella. He's a young Causa conservationist who 
does work with the national parks here. And it was a sad evening because we were driving back from town um, with my dog, Tuli, and she'd just been diagnosed with tumors. And two weeks later, I had to put her down. But as we were driving out of town, there's a couple of speed bumps on the on the fringe of town heading up to where I live on the edge of the forest. And an extraordinary thing happened. He had a friend of his sitting in the back seat with my dog, Tuli. I was turned around stroking my dog and uh, Tabs, his friend, was um, giving her crisps or something. We were preoccupied. And Tembella went over the speed bump. And a, as he did that, a, um, a small O-tongue, he said about 1.2 meters, dashed in front of the headlights. But Tembella didn't say a word that night until a week later, he was, he, him and I were driving into town and um, he said to me, these Otung, because anyone who spends a lot of time in the wilds with me, I tell them about the Otung because there's a chance they might even see one. And knowing how people go through shock by letting them know about it, it it's my, my way of trying to lessen the shock. Um, and so a month previously, I told Tembella about the Otung, very interested in it. So a week later, <clears throat> he said to me, Gareth, are, are some of these Otung quite small? And I said, yeah, of course, they're like people. I said, why? He says, well, a week ago when we were driving Tuli back from the vet, um, one dashed in front of the, the car. And I said, why didn't you tell me that? And he gave the classic eyewitness reply. And he says, because I thought you wouldn't believe me. And which was funny to me because I actually turned around to him. And I said, um, Tembella, of course I would have believed you. I was the one who told you about these beings in the first place. He actually stood up at the book launch. If people go onto my Facebook page um, and scroll down to a post about the launch, there's actually a video of him standing up, very brave young man, to stand up and, and to tell the people at the launch about his um, eyewitness account of an Otung with me in the car and Tabs and Thule. And um, he was the only one who saw it. I think it's also very encouraging to these witnesses that you are becoming this lightning rod of that information and a magnet for those stories, because not only does your reputation make you a, a highly credible uh, and uh, established wildlife researcher, but you're not just interested in taking these stories. You've also seen these beings yourself and have spoken about it. So could you tell us about the first time that you saw an Otong? I've always been very, very close to the indigenous people, be it in Botswana or Malawi. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in post-independent Africa, so I went to schools which are all multiracial. I, you know, we, we didn't grow up seeing color. So I've always been very close to the local people or the indigenous people. And I think that's partly why some of these stories sort of came to me um, um, because they, people were opening up, you know, and while, while in the past they'd, they'd feel, fear the ridicule, you know, of talking to it, to, to maybe a white South African or whatever, I don't want to get into color or anything, but I think your audience will know what I mean. So they felt comfortable with me. And, uh, but going to the first sighting, it was around about, it was around about July, August, 2002, and I had just recently, at that time, discovered what I, what I uh, began to refer to as the secret place of the elephant. And it's the most extraordinary place in a very isolated area. All this work was done on foot. And I kept on going behind this mountain more and more. And as I, over the days and weeks, kept on exploring further, I kept on finding more and more signs of the elephant more footprints, more droppings, until one day it culminated in me turning a corner and it was just like elephant droppings all over the place, footprints all over the place, feeding sign everywhere. I mean, it was like, um, it was like a scene from the Kruger National Park near a waterhole. Um, so much sign of the elephant and very quickly... I walked for you know a couple of hundred meters, and I discovered why the elephants were congregating there. 
in that area was that there was a, a very small spring on the side of the mountain, and it was active um, in the sense that you could see particles of sand pushing upwards um, th through the water. Now, elephants are connoisseurs of water. I later had that water tested by the South African Bureau of Standards, and they said they, they, I didn't really tell them what um, where, where the water was or what it's in conjunction with. But they said, Gareth, you should be bottling this water. This is fantastic mineral water, you know. <laughs> and so the, elephant, the elephants were congregating there on a regular basis because of that such fantastic water. And I could go there at any point in time and at, at the very least find fairly fresh sign of the elephants. And I did a lot of DNA work in that area. And on one of, yeah, so this was a Sunday morning and I'd just been to the secret place of the elephant and I was walking back. It was a clear day. Um, I was completely clear headed. I was looking forward. It was a routine with my girlfriend at the time on Sunday lunchtime. We'd go to a lovely restaurant on the edge of the Indian Ocean here. I was looking forward to having lunch with her. Last thing on my mind of any mystery beings and suddenly my bush instinct i think we've all got the instinct um that you know when you're being watched or, or or someone or something is looking at you and i turned to my left and i saw one of these beings which i estimated i think to be about five foot three inches just with like a third of its body or a little bit more than that, just peeping behind. A lot of this area here is actually pine plantation. Um, so it's, you know, so it's farmed trees. And, and, these, and, and it was just peeping behind uh, this tree. And basically in the bush, if you, in the bush, if, you, if you're walking where there's big cats or whatever, and you, you you see a lion or whatever, the best thing is actually not to stop and turn around and look at it, which you could perceive as a threat, but just keep it in the corner of your eye and just act naturally and keep on walking. And my instinct that morning told me to do the same. So I kept it in the corner of my eye for as long as I could and then just kept on walking. And I walked for, I don't know, a kilometer, a kilometer and a half. I forget what I put in the book. And after that, I turned around, couldn't see anything. And then I just literally sank to the ground. And that's when the shock hits me. Because like I said, the last thing on my mind that very clear morning was coming across one of these beings. And I sat there and it was like a cloud, like a fog that descended on me. It was like being in a bubble. And I just put my hands over my eyes. And then eventually, I suppose it was only a few minutes, I got up again and I started walking back to where I'd left my vehicle, but still very much in a shock, let's put it like that. So that was the, that was the first sighting. I think very soon after that, I, I met a wonderful old forest lady called Mrs. Jordan, um, who was in her 80s then. Sadly, she passed away a number of years ago. She'd lived in the forest for about 60 years. And she lived in a very quaint little house um, on the edge of the forest. And um, there was a house next to her um, <clears throat> where her, her daughters lived with the, with, with the grandchildren and all the rest of it. And I got to know this little family. And I don't know how Otung came into our conversations. I would be passing their place and stopping by their place every week. And, and she would tell me stories about the elephants and all that kind of thing. And then one day, out of the blue, I think it pretty much was, she recounted the story of how she actually watched one of these beings for a number of minutes. Um, she lived in a, a previously, many years, 40 years previously, she had lived in a little, <clears throat> little house at a forest station um, on the edge of the forest. And uh, cutting a long story short, she was just one, her children were asleep in, in bed and she was doing some knitting on on the kitchen table so she she's an interesting lady because she's the probably the last of her generation of the original first people of this area 
which are the sand people or the Bushmen, as people call them. And um, she was just sitting there doing knitting. She knew about Otung because to the forest people, the Otung isn't really anything that strange. Uh, they, they see it very much as like the leopard or the bushbuck or the bush pig or the elephants themselves, that they're just inhabitants of this area. And she'd, she'd in the past over the years come across footprints and this kind of thing, and her, her friends had seen footprints. Um, they've had um, these beings run across the road <clears throat> in front of the headlights. So they, they knew they existed, but she hadn't actually seen one herself. And, um, and suddenly her little dog started growling. She grabbed her torch and she went to the kitchen window. It must have been summer because the window was wide open. She shone around outside in the garden and she couldn't see anything. She went back to her knitting and then the dog started growling again. And so she went to the kitchen window and on the edge of her vegetable um, vegetable patch, um, there she saw an otang. And uh, yeah, she was she was shocked, even though she knew about them. She watched it for a while, and it turned its head to one way, as if listening to something. And in a flash, it was gone. And then she went back to the kitchen table, sat down, and she felt shock. And a few minutes later, she heard a rumble of a truck. And then she realized that the Otung that she had been watching had um, heard this truck obviously a long time before her and and moved away and um the, the next more yeah and then she actually almost like um was daring herself in the sense that almost scaring herself she actually went to the kitchen door with her torch and opened it a little bit and shone around and she couldn't see anything but immediately um smelt this very pungent smell um, which she described, she's a Afrikaans-speaking lady, but in, translated into English, what she was saying, that she could smell what smelt like, direct translation would be a worked horse or a sweaty horse, um, which she presumed was the, was the Otung. And then the next morning, to make sure she hadn't imagined the whole thing, um, she went out as the sun was coming up. Uh, the children were still sleeping. She went to the vegetable patch, and yeah, and lo and behold, there's the there's the footprints. And she knew what she had seen the night before was not imagination. <laughs> when I read that part of the book, I got chills because one of the things that our organization here, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, has experienced time and time again, in conjunction with activity. Uh, you know, interactions, et cetera, when we feel like we're close to to these mystery animals is this strong, sweaty horse smell consistently. And so when I read that, I immediately uh, was was pretty floored by that particular connection. And I also, I loved the portion where you described, and I'll let you tell it in your own words, but when, when the realization occurred of the size of the Otung that she actually saw. Yeah, what, what happened there was quite interesting because over the years she would tell me this story over and over and over again. And I, th I think it was the very last time she told me this story. Um, I actually interrupted her towards the end and I pointed to my shoulder. I'm six foot, six foot one. And I pointed to my shoulder and I actually interrupted what she was saying. And I said to her, yes, and you said it was about this height pointing at my shoulder or just below my shoulder. And then this is all being translated from, from her Afrikaans to English via her daughter. And then she like got she's sitting on her little chair and she almost got impatient and and, and she and she grasped her, her her hands and she started like almost um, knocking the sides of the, the armchair or whatever. She says, Gareth, Gareth, how many times have I told you this story? Um, why don't you listen? Um, no, it wasn't that size. It was at least a foot or so taller than you. And that's when I realized, sure, you know, they're not, they're not all small, relatively small beings, that they're actually very tall. And then my, you know, jumping ahead to my third sighting, um, I actually saw one. And that was, that was again, very, very, very strange um, sighting. 
because I was on, on my way to a, a, a trail camera that I'd put up, not for Othung, but just doing general mammal survey on the edge of the National Park. And I was heading there to go and check this one camera and remove the memory card. And suddenly I heard a, a huge commotion in front of me. I, I, I judge about, I don't know, 70 meters or 50 meters ahead of me or something. And then suddenly I saw this very tall one, must have been at least, I'd say close on seven foot, just in absolute panic, running from left to left to right in front of me and heading straight through sort of mixed plantation, fame boss, heading straight for a gorge, a very deep gorge, uh, which was to the right of me. And it was crashing through the vegetation and disappeared. And um, yeah, and I saw for myself that that these beings, they are, they're, they, some of them are very tall. And then, the, you know, the very last sighting I had was only three years ago. And that was also extraordinary. Um, after um, Beyond the Secret Elephants is the sequel of a book I wrote back in 2009 called The Secret Elephant. And uh, when that book came out, people were contacting me asking if, if they can come into the forest with me and to share my experiences with them. And I, I formalized that into a sort of mini, mini expedition or tour, whatever you like to call it, called the Secret Elephants Forest Experience. And I was guiding a group of, it was a large group, because um, normally I only take out about three or four people, but I think in this group there were about six or eight people. We were in a sort of a small bus sort of thing, a van thing. And um, I was with the people, and they'd all read The Secret Elephant. And like the German tourists, these are these are terribly well-traveled, well-educated people and all the rest of it. And we stopped at a point where you can look down this deep gorge at a beautiful pool in the in, in a river. And we're all looking down there. And a lady had a pair of binoculars, and she was looking down there. And then she suddenly said, Gareth, Gareth, what's that? pointing down below near the pool. And I looked down and and uh, there we saw, um, all of us saw, this um, a, a tall O-tongue. Again, moving, this, moving from left to right. So it was three quarters on to us. And obviously we're looking from above. And we saw it walking along towards the outcrop of rocks and there's some caves there. And then when it disappeared, the people, they were saying, Gareth, you know, what was that? And I said, you've all read The Secret Elephant. In The Secret Elephant, I actually mentioned in a couple of pages, not going into any detail, about the legend of these beings. And I said, you all read The Secret Elephant. Do you remember I mentioned about a being called the O-Tongue? Now, I'd been with them for about three, four hours or longer on this, on this trip, and they're a very chatty, enthusiastic group. When I, when I said to them about the Otung, they went absolutely quiet, and we still had about another half an hour's drive to where they were going to drop me off where I, where I live on the edge of the forest. And, and then the shock of what they'd seen had set in, and no one said a word in the vehicle for the next half an hour until we got to the gate. And then it was really only just saying goodbye, which broke the silence. And that, again, illustrates the shock that, you know, that the people go through. That's so fascinating. I'm, I'm really interested, too, you know, the descriptions in the book are coupled with some, some sketches that you've made. And there's some physical features there that seem to be very similar to, like, the North American Sasquatch, et cetera. So I wonder if we could touch on a couple of those things. So do they seem to have... Uh, like the suggestion of a sagittal crest or a bit of that kind of sloped, peaked head? Certainly, certainly with the, the first one that I saw, the, the smaller one, it seemed like the head was like that. that. Um, the, the second sighting was one, I think it was, a, it was a juvenile, and it was daring itself because it leapt out um, as I was walking on this pathway. It leapt away from me. And it was clearly, um, it clearly was a, a younger one. And I sensed with this one, it was a, a young male rather than the first one. I sensed that it was female for some strange reason. It just seemed feminine in its mannerism. 
Uh, but this one jumped out and very, very muscular. I mean, it's got a body like a bodybuilder, you know, very almost like narrow hips and broad shoulders. I couldn't really see the head. The head on the one running away, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's, it would be typical Sasquatch, what we, what you might, you know, refer to as um, a Sasquatch head. But otherwise, the features, you know, and not being able to see too much of the face at all, or the, you know, the actual features of the face. But, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, to me, whether they are subspecies of, you know, the same species, it's interesting in Africa because there's, in East Africa, there's another being that is known as the Agogwi, and these are reputed to be quite small, only about four foot high, at, at uh, four to five foot high as adults. Well, um, Dr. George Schaller, in his first book, The Year of the Gorilla, he's recounting stories of eyewitnesses back then um, of very, very tall and very, very dark. Um, the, the female I saw, she's what, what I think is the female. It was more of a sort of russet color, while, as you said, the taller one was more of a beigey color. And the, the, the last sighting, it might even be the same individual because it wasn't far from there um, that I had that sighting. And again, was more beigey. While the, what I tend to think was the juvenile male, sub-adult, let's say sub-adult male, um, that he, he was quite dark. So it, it seems like it's, it can be sort of fairly variable. I don't know how it is over there in terms of coloration in your experience. What we found, interestingly enough, that another fascinating parallel with your book is that not only in our experiences and observations there in our particular study site, but across the data set in North America, generally speaking, the smaller individuals uh, going into that kind of sub-adult range tend to be described as like black or so very dark brown that it's in the near black or extremely dark red. And as they trend towards the largest individuals, typically the sightings of the very, very largest individuals in the record are into that whiter phase, like a, a gray into a light gray or slate gray to the near white. So I found that really interesting that the larger individuals that were seen in your particular area were in that lighter color phase, whereas the subadults seem to be in the darker phase. So uh, another fascinating parallel. One of the questions that I had since so many of the observations occurred at night was whether or not any witnesses had ever described uh, reflective eyes. No, that uh, that that hasn't come up. That, that hasn't come up at all. Um, from the descriptions of when they're running across the road, it seems like they, you know, they're just heading straight across the road and they're not actually looking towards the vehicle. That's the sort of indication that I've got from uh, Tembella, who I was talking about earlier. He didn't mention anything about reflecting eyes. The forestry guys. Um, a couple of eyewitnesses in the vehicle. They didn't mention that. So I, I always got the impression that they just their heads are facing where they're running, so they're not turned towards the vehicle at all. So no, I haven't heard any. And also with Mrs. Jordan, she didn't mention. But I'm not saying that they're not seeing reflections. It's just that no one mentioned it, and I didn't ask about it. To be absolutely honest. Yeah, I think that would be you know because that's so very prevalent in the North American Sasquatch reports is that you know there there are an even distribution of sightings during the day and at night. But obviously, they must be more active at night since there are fewer people out at night and since their vision is much more limited to have as many sightings at night where you think that that is indicative of some nighttime activity, uh, not strict nocturnalism, but at least a, a higher degree of activity at night. And so very often the Sasquatch reports at night involve reflective eyes. And so I thought, well, if the Otung has reflective eyes, then it would really be a strong indicator that there might be some like phylogenetic continuity there. Because that's, you know, there's in so many ways, they're very much like other large apes. I mean, there's a lot of behavioral and uh, physiological correlatives with the exception of, you know, the reflective eyes. I mean, that's kind of a strange thing in the uh, in the larger primate world or the great ape world. So I wondered if you had had any conversations or given thought to, you know, potential ancestral candidates there like the Australopithecines or Paranthropus or something of that nature, or if you had any speculation of what these things might be. 
Well, there's there's two things there. Um, before my sighting of the large one in 2009, in 2007, I was once again in a in a car, um, and I didn't see it because I was uh, basically. Long story short, I was with um, a friend of mine, a neighbour of mine, who was driving her little um, red golf, and I was sitting next to her, and behind me was my um, American website manager at the time, Venice. And she was visiting, doing um, some video work, doing a little documentary on my work on the elephants. And we were driving at night back to where I live, where I still live. And um, <clears throat> my neighbor, Domi, she, she, she'd spent a lot of time out in the forest. She knew about the Otang. I told her. And as we were driving along, we'd just, we'd just been to an, an Italian restaurant. We had an early meal. We were heading back. We were tired. Benice and I were tired because we'd been filming for two days. We were going to have an early night. And then suddenly, Domi just swerved the vehicle. And she said something like, it's got no tail. I immediately knew what she had seen. I was worried about, I, I, I was talking to Benice, so I had turned around. I, so I wasn't looking straight ahead like Domi was. And I was talking to Venice, and I was worried about um, Venice you know, knowing about what's just run in front of the vehicle, um, quite a scary thing. So I, I just said, no, don't worry about it, Venice. Something's just run in front of the road or whatever. And then I, I later that evening, I spoke to Domi about what she saw. And again, she didn't talk about reflecting eyes. And very much the impression she gave me was that, again, it was its head was pointing in the direction of where it was running. And it ran down an embankment on the right-hand side of the road, right in front of the road, and then down the embankment, um, sloping down on the left-hand side. And uh, this friend of mine, Domi, she was actually on homeopathic tranquilizers for the next five days after that, even though she knew about them and had seen footprints of them with me. She, she still went into a state of shock. But going back to what they are, you know, with the recent findings of how recent Homo Naledi was existing um, in, in South Africa at the same time as anatomically modern man, um, be it here or in the cradle of mankind where they made the discovery of Homo Naledi, whether it's Homo Naledi, I don't know. But I mean, the thing is, is that paleontologists like uh, Lee Berger, um, who made the discovery with his colleagues, um, when they were looking at the feet of Homo Nardlady, he described them as being Nike-ready. They were so human, human-like. That was actually his description of the feet and people studying the feet of these beings. It's so similar to humans, um, which makes a lot of sense when it comes to what we're finding out there in terms of footprints. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know. Um, <clears throat> they discovered very close to where I'm talking to you now, only about seven kilometers on the coast, they found a whole set of ancient footprints of elephants, of lion, of giraffe that were existing here hundreds of thousands years ago, but also of people. And the whole thing is, is that they, the researchers immediately assumed that they would be humans, that it would be homo sapiens. They were sort of rebuked by uh, Professor John Hawke, who's a colleague of Lee Berger, saying that we shouldn't automatically assume that they're homo sapien because homo naledi was existing, um, coexisting at the same time 200,000 years ago <clears throat> with the, yeah, naledi was out there basically at the same time as as um, humans were. You know, it's interesting, too, to see these parallels in terms of just absolute avoidance of human confrontation for the most part. I mean, clearly they've uh, at least approached you on a number of occasions to observe, but, you know, this this conserved behavior across the world of, of just being adapted and, and, like, selected for the avoidance of human contact, the avoidance of human confrontation is is absolutely fascinating. And so you have to wonder if this interspecies competition was one of the greatest selection pressures in their history. And that, you know, gave rise to this thing that 
essentially was selected for being human proof in a lot of ways and and maybe vice versa i mean maybe some to some degree that's why we have such a blind spot collectively and why progress in understanding these things has been so slow and i wonder too if if you think that uh, you know or if you've experienced any interest from the scientific or academic community in trying to facilitate some kind of observational field studies there, or if you think there will be interest from uh, anthropologists or primatologists in looking into these particular reports or into that uh, region around Nizna. It will be interesting to see what happens in the future, because um, certainly um, my colleague um, Ian Redmond, who, as you know, is a is a uh, world-famous primatologist. He wrote the foreword for the book, and I'd known um, about Ian's interest in relic hominoids for a long time. And like I say, he's a colleague of mine, so he was the natural person that I, you know, who I thought about when it came to asking to write a foreword. So I mean, he's very open-minded about it, and um, you know, I'd been in contact with um, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Um, about the book because um, I wanted to use um, a couple of quotes from from his book and and um, I know that he's he's presently reading the book and him and um, Ian had just discussed it and and I think um, on Cliff and Bobo's show Cliff was saying that he contacted Jeff and Jeff was saying yeah no he's he's heard, he's he knows about the book because he's reading it and that sort of thing. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, who 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 comes forward. But um, I think it's early days, to be absolutely honest. When I was telling you about the man who came up to me, who's a anthropologist, um, whose son had seen it, um, he was completely open-minded because he 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 knew that his son would not. His son, first of all, didn't tell his parents or even his brother for a, a good couple of years about the sighting, and then. And then told them, and um, he said to me, this man told, the father said to me, um, there's absolutely no doubt in his mind what his, what his son saw, which, uh, which was, you know, really quite refreshing, you know, hearing from a, from a scientist, um, an academic that, um, yeah, he's not, he's, he's certainly not going to doubt his son. And uh, he couldn't doubt his son, what his, what, what his son saw, you know. But in terms of others, it's going to be very, very interesting to see who might come forward. I would so welcome it because I think, I think we've, we've got to the point now that more and more people are going public and having an open-mindedness about it. I mean, I mentioned in the book about Dr. Jane Goodall and, 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 and George Schuller. And and here in South Africa, I mean, a, a world famous paleontologist, um, Professor Robert, nicknamed Bob um, Brain, um, who did fantastic work over decades in Stokefontein. I actually recount in the book um, how um, we got to know each other, and he told me that over the years um, he would um, he would look into reports of these beings. Um, which again was really, really refreshing uh, for me. I mean, he's uh, you know a world-renowned paleontologist, and certainly, as far as I know, no one would dare you know ridicule him uh, for being public about. He keeps an open mind on the whole thing. I definitely hope that there's a different attitude about the possibility there because you are in Africa and specifically South Africa, because, you know, the prevailing American attitude is that, well, we've dominated everything. We've conquered everything. There's nothing left to be found in North America. And therefore, no claim could be considered uh, seriously, because certainly, you know, there's this just this arrogance, whereas it's Africa. In Africa, you would expect there to be, you know, if there's anywhere in the world that someone would expect a mystery hominoid, it would be Africa, you know, the birthplace of of, uh, of hominids and hominin, et cetera. And so I definitely hope that that open-mindedness extends and that, you know, it seems like you would be devoid of a lot of the pitfalls that the American mindset <laughs> gives rise to in terms of pursuing this here in that, uh, you know. And also, it's fascinating to me when I tried to plot some of the sightings um, just based on the descriptions that you had mentioned in the book, I was fascinated at just how close to town some of them were. And so it does seem like 
uh, you know, the kind of accessible place that, well, also your weather seems pretty uh, idyllic too. So it's not like the, you know, the the harsh winters of Siberia or the brutal summers of, you know, other parts of the world. It seems like a very perfect study site. So hopefully scientists do make the trip down there and pursue the things there as well. I think I think we will get reaction um, be, um, on the, on, because on the one side, this is, this this book beyond the secret elephants is as far as i know it's the first time that anyone has actually written about these beings in in book form um, um we've got for example in terms of indigenous people um a marvelous man called credo mutwa who's regarded as the prophet of africa and he wrote a best selling book back in the 60s called in in darbar my my children, he's a very old man today, but he's he's very much seen as a prophet and 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 the old wise man of Africa who went across the sort of barriers of actually writing about African beliefs for for a, um, a for a European, if you want to call it that audience. He was quite unique in that regard. He wrote he wrote about such beings, but in in. But not in detail. He just mentions them in that book and various other books of his. But then, in terms of the, like in the colonial days, the closest that you got to someone writing about this was um, a uh, someone who worked for the British government in in what is today Tanzania, um, Captain William Hitchens, and he wrote an extensive article about uh, well, an article called African Mystery Beasts in which he tells of his own eyewitness account of, of what I was mentioning as the Agogwi, uh, the shorter form of these beings in, in East Africa. Um, but otherwise, it's very scant, you know, literature. So that, that was part of the reason why I wanted to, to write the book, to get it out, to try and get it out there to a broader um, audience. Of the of the existence of these beings, because like you say, if it, if they are going to occur anywhere, it will be here. But going back to um, people having sightings, uh, a friend of mine on Facebook, a, a, a much older lady, I think she's in her eighties, she contacted me after reading the book, and she told me about a sighting she had because they're not restricted. To hear, you know, there's sightings of these beings in various places in, in the country and about 300, 400 kilometers from where I live. Um, as a young teenager, 60 years ago, she was driving with her parents through a mountain pass. And one of these beings, she told me, um, leapt out from the side of the road and actually ran on the road in front of them for a, a fair distance before veering off. And that lady, she had kept that story to herself for more than 60 years. Um, but that's also, you know, illustrating that they're not, it, this is nothing unique to hear. Um, the Afrikaans, um, farmers, uh, end of 1890s or whatever, um, they made mention of such beings in the far north of the country, which is very dry, arid area. I mean, generally, South Africa is a very arid country. Like you said, the climate where I live is very temperate. I mean, it's beautiful. It's like the Mediterranean here. Mm -hmm. we, you know, it's very, very lovely. We have winter rains, which the rest of the country, that, that's why we've got a forest here, because we've got winter rain. Um, the rest of the country is very, very arid. So in the far north of the country, in, in like the Limpopo province, bordering with Botswana and Zimbabwe. Um, so back in the 1890s, the, the, the settler farmers up there, they, they knew of such a being um, because it would raid their <clears throat> orchards um, and go off with their livestock. And they regarded the animal, they called it the Vata Bobajan, which Afrikaans, in English translation, um, means the water baboon, because they would find it in association with springs um, or little waterfalls, which is fascinating. So, so their range, I believe, is is quite wide. That is fascinating. Yeah, I've I've spent a lot of time on Google Earth and these aerial photos, just examining that area because you know it's it's all so entirely new to me, having not encountered any information. I mean, Ivan Sanderson wrote 
a fantastic work in the 60s. I believe he published it in 1961 called Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life. And it's about mystery apes in North America. There's a little bit from South America and then primarily Asia. And then he touches a little bit on on the African continent. But beyond that, there, to your point, there's never been any work that's been done on this. And so it was entirely new to me. And yeah, Dr. Meldrum had posted about your book on Facebook. I was home for the weekend so I thought, okay, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll read it because I read a lot of you know wildlife field research or observational field study oriented books about a host of animals, uh, you know, tigers, bears, etc. And so I thought, oh, okay, elephants. This sounds fascinating. And then uh, I read the whole thing in one sitting, basically because I was just so riveted and fascinated. Once the idea of the O-tongue was introduced. And so I would highly encourage all of our listeners to read this. And where would you prefer that that people find your books online if they wanted to read Beyond the Secret Elephants or any, any other books from your catalog? Well, I mean, um, <clears throat> all of my past books, with the ones which are no longer in physical um, print form at the moment, they are all available on Amazon as eBooks. So, I mean, with, with this one as well... Um, the ones that are currently in print, The Secret Elephants, which was, you know, Beyond the Secret Elephants is the sequel of it. Uh, that's, that's readily available on, on Amazon. My autobiography, My Lion's Heart, I think that's available on Amazon. Uh, the children's book, which I did in 2018, uh, I think that's only in print form in, in South Africa. And, um, yeah, and Beyond the Secret Elephants, Kindle, um, Amazon, yeah. Excellent. And if people wanted to follow you online or read more, is there a particular website that you direct them to or a social media outlet? Yeah, there is. There's, there's, there's my website. Very simply, it's just www.garethpatterson.com. But then I've also got an African environmentalism group called Sukai, which is really giving an African perspective on environmentalism. And Africans were the, were the original environmentalist a lot of people don't seem to know this because mankind after all came out of africa so we have to be the the first environmentalist um and um it's an interesting website and it's uh, www.sakaiafrica.com sakai is spelled s-e-k-a-i then africa one word and and then people can find me on on my facebook page as well where I do quite a lot of updates on what's going on and stuff like that. With with um, you know what I wrote in the, Beyond the, the Secret Elephants, it was like make, making it publicly known that these beings exist. And but what we're moving more and more into now, um, now the book is out, is in our own little way. You know, it's just my it's just my girlfriend and myself is is looking into the behaviour. You know, I've got so many eyewitnesses and being an eyewitness. Myself, you know, I'm not out there to try and prove their existence to anyone, you know. It's but now it's like like I've done with lion or elephant or whatever. It's to learn about the behavior. That is what I am at the end of the day is an observer of behavior. You know, that's what I am with with wildlife. Well, I would be fascinated to continue following your work and see what other parallels occur between the Otung and the Sasquatch or, you know, the Yeren or the Yowie. And uh, again, I, I hope that all of our listeners go buy the book Beyond the Secret Elephants immediately, uh, because I think it's it's one of the most important contributions to the subject of mystery apes worldwide and easily the most important modern uh, addition to that because it's just absolutely fascinating. And so I feel very fortunate to have encountered that and to speak to you about it now. And especially again, given your, the caliber of your field research, your reputation, your credibility, I think it's a huge contribution. And so I know a lot of people are very grateful for this edition. Brilliant. Thanks ever so much, Matt. It has been really great talking to you. Thank you. You as well, Gareth. And we'll keep in touch. That sounds perfect. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this first installment of Planet of the Mystery Apes here on Apes Among Us. If you're interested in reading Gareth's book, again, it's called Beyond the Secret Elephants, and it's available on Amazon in Kindle format. If you're interested in learning more about the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, you can find us online at woodape.org or on Facebook at North American Wood Ape Conservancy.